go here to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15, we have the Song of Moses. The interesting thing is, this isn't the only Song of Moses, okay? Um, We also have the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, a different song. You know, he writes his song down. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll put a Bible in your hand. That's why they're coming down. They're not here to mug you or anything. Anybody need a Bible? So Moses wrote another song in Exodus, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 32, the day that he walks up Mount Nebo and dies. Before he does that, he writes this song. We also know that in Psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses that they end up putting to song later on. So there's actually three songs of Moses. We're going to go over the first one here in Exodus uh, chapter 15. Here we have the children of Israel. They had just seen an incredible miracle by God. God has just saved them from the Egyptian army. Um, God has divided the Red Sea there at the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, The Israelites crossed over on dry ground, and when the Egyptians tried to follow God, closed up the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh's army. So God has just saved Israel, and this deserves a response. He's done a pretty amazing thing in saving them. And so this response is this song that breaks out among Israel here. As a matter of fact, this is the very first worship song ever recorded in the Bible. Find that interesting. This is also the first time you'll find in the Bible the words sing, sang, and song. This is the first time it's ever used in God's Word. And up to this moment in Exodus, we have not read in the whole account of Exodus, we have not read of any praise or thanksgiving of the Israelite people to God. We have not read of anything like that. We have not seen anyone praising God over the ten plagues. We have not seen anyone praise or sing or worship God in any way before here in chapter 15. So let's read this and let's see how in this song the object of worship is obviously God. How often it says he and him or you or yours or Lord. We read here in verse 1. It says that Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. The Lord is is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The word Lord there, Yahweh. Anytime again, you see L-O-R-D capitalized. It's Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble and with the blast of your nostrils. The waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy will say, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. When you are against God's people, you are against God. And so when it says, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw the sword. That's exactly what Hamas is saying right now. And they're against God. And it's not going to fare well for them. It's not going to fare well for them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, 
have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength, in your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Felicia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, of, in, in the place O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, very grateful for your word, and I do ask that you open the, uh, the eyes, uh, our eyes, to be able to see the wonders of your word. And I also want to pray for Israel. Uh, you tell us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, so I do that. And as I went through this, it just reminds me how Israel's enemies are the exact same people that were here with Egypt, how they want to do this, how they want this, I will overtake, I will divide, I will draw my sword. Yet by doing that, they're against you. And so I pray you would destroy Israel's enemies and again that you would get the glory through it all and protect the Israeli people in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we have here as we go through this, um, if you you read one commentary, it'll say this. If another one says another, they'll break it into five stanzas, four stanzas, six stanzas. So I've broken it down to four stanzas because it just seemed good to me. So here are the four stanzas that I see as I go through this. Verses 1 through 5, God's victory is announced. Verses 6 through 10, God's power is described. Verses 11 through 16, God's character is exalted. And verses 16 through 18, God's promises are fulfilled. And so here in verse 1, it says, And Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Again, the word Lord there in the Hebrew is Yahweh. And so it's used 11 or 12 times, depending if you include the abbreviated version of Yahweh, Yah, in verse 2, or you include verse 19 as part of the song. Um, If you don't include either of those, then there's 10 times where the name Yahweh is used. I will sing to the Lord. One great principle of worship is that the object needs to be the Lord, not to man. When we worship God in song, our audience is the Lord himself, not the people around us. We are not here to perform. That includes the worship team as well. I want to see no performances up here. I don't want to see anybody, you know, using their voice in such a way that it brings attention to them here in this church. You're singing to God. You're not singing for the people around you. All true worship is always directed to God. And I find this interesting that the very first recorded song of praise that we have here, God is obviously the object and what he has done for his redeemed. But it's all about God and no one else. C.H. McIntosh, a 19th century Christian preacher, I'm reading his commentary through Exodus right now, and it's, it's just so well written and so beautiful. Um, he is talking about the song of Moses here. And he says, in Exodus 15, we do not find a single note about self. It's doings, it's sayings, it's feelings. It's all about Jehovah from beginning to end. It begins with, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. This entire song is just simply about God and his attributes and what he has done. He would go on to say, self is forgotten, circumstances are lost, one object is the Lord himself, his character, his ways. This is true worship. It is when poor, worthless self with all its belongings is lost sight of, and Christ alone fills the heart. In all true worship, God himself is at once the object, subject, and power of worship. He would go on to say, now understand when I read this, this is back in the 1850s, okay? He would go on to say, how different is this from some of the hymns we so often hear sung in Christian assemblies, 
so full of our failings, feebleness, or shortcomings. What he is saying is back in the 1850s that this is the true object of worship, but how this new music is coming in, this new fangled music hymns coming in, that is what? Focusing on self instead of God. As the object. There's nothing new under the sun. I complain the same thing. There's some great music out there and there's some really good music still coming out, but I see a lot that is focused upon the self and how wretched we are and how that, and it's like, that's not the focus. The focus needs to be God and what he has done for his redeemed. That's true worship. I believe all true worship should be directed to God. And here we see the pronouns all through this about God. He, him, you, yours, all speaking of the Lord, Yahweh. The word Lord there is used 35 times, or I should say when it says he, him, you, and yours, the pronouns, there's 35 pronouns that is used in this song, which is all about God, the Lord. True worship directing to God and what he has done for his people. If you're a Christian here this morning, then you have been saved by a great and mighty gracious God. And that too deserves a response from us. And so when we sing unto the Lord, we sing out of gratitude of heart. And then we live a life of gratitude for all to see in our obedience to him. It goes on and says here in, uh, in, in Exodus 15, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. They praise God for what only God could do. He is the one that destroyed Pharaoh's army. He is the one that saved them. No one else could do it but him. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. The Lord is my strength. The reason why Joey is able to carry on and be able to have the strength he does is because the strength comes from God. He has strength in the Lord. In Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. All things that have eternal significance can only be done in the strength of the Lord who is Christ. And you're seeing that with Joey every single day. He's walking in the strength of the Lord. He knows who has him. He knows that he is saved by him and he knows where he's going. He has become my salvation, a glorious phrase that recognizes we cannot save ourselves. God must become our salvation. And so songs sung to him because salvation belongs to him and no other. You cannot save yourself. He is my God, I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. Moses declares that, uh, that, uh, that Yahweh is his God. And so he's going to praise him. And he also mentions that he's my father's God. I will exalt him. Now that could be speaking specifically of Amram, his father, who also believes in Yahweh, or it could be speaking collectively of the forefathers that went before him. As he is saying right here that, that I'm not introducing to you to a different God. He is the God, the God of our forefathers, the God that went and got Abraham and made us his chosen people. It is that God right there of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of his forefathers. The word exalt here is a Hebrew word, rum, and it means to lift up, to raise up, to be lofty, to set on high. True worship places God where he belongs, on high, on high. That's where he belongs. He is above us. We are beneath him. He is God. We are not. We place him in the proper place where he deserves The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. It makes it very clear to me when I read this verse and I read other verses that talk about this, as we've mentioned before, L-O-R-D, whenever it is capitalized means Yahweh. He tells us what his name is. Understand that we are mankind, but as mankind, you have a personal name. God, Elohim, That is the Godhead. Just like there's mankind, there's the Godhead. Well, the Godhead has a personal name, and it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. Yahweh is his name. Isaiah 42.8, I am Yahweh. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. In Jeremiah 16.21, therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. 
I will cause them to know my hand, my might, and they shall know my name is Yahweh. Now, you might find this interesting. In 2 Chronicles 6.6, 6, Yet I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. That's God speaking. Well, check this out. Jerusalem, hills of Judea, Yahweh. yod Hey, wah Hey. Let's look at the next one. It might, might show up a little bit better for you there. It's the name of God right there. Yahweh. Interesting. Topographical shot there of the hills of Judea, and you see his name right now. Now, in, in Judaism, they'll have a picture of this. There's a shop in uh, the, the Jewish quarter. Uh, the owner of the shop, his name is Moshe. I, I have great conversations. I love that guy. Um, and he has this picture uh, that you can buy and frame it and everything. But down below it says Hashem, which means the name. Because for Jews, they won't utter the name of God. In order to honor God, they don't think that an unholy vessel can say his holy name, even though God's word, all through his word says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. So down below they'll say, it'll say Hashem, which just means the name. Well, what is the name? Yahweh is the name. Yahweh is the name. Um, we also read here, the Lord is a man of war. Now, this sometimes stumbles people because they don't like God being referred to as a man of war. They just want him to be of love and grace and mercy and things like that. But God has referred to, uh, referred to this 285 times in the Old Testament as the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of armies. And if this um, if in this world we have an enemy, God has an enemy, his name is Satan, and we also have an enemy, his name is Satan. We also have an enemy of sin and evil, um, and all evil is hateful to God. And so he must wage war against those that are his enemies. In Israel, in Israel, in Isaiah 42, 13, it says, The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, we see Jesus up there, and we see him as the Lamb of God, okay? We see Jesus as the Lamb of God, but we also see him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we both know that the Lamb is the one who died for our sins, but the Lion is also the one who's going to judge the world. And they're one and the same person. They're one and the same. And the day will come where he'll ride forth to conquer his enemies. And we read about that in Revelation 19. To emphasize God is only love and not judge is to actually rob God of his attributes of righteousness, holiness, and justice. God cannot be judged if he does not punish sin. Now, there's more to this Lord is a man of war and we'll come back to that. But let's just continue on verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. This all describes uh, what God has done, his victory. Um, and now it kind of goes into God's power in that victory in verses 6 through 10. And so it says, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw the sword. My hand shall destroy them. These are all prideful statements. Six of them. And it reminds me of the five I wills of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14. It says this in verse 13. For you have said in your heart, this is God, Isaiah speaking about um, Satan himself. That you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. 
Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And we see that as he's thrown in the, uh, the, the pit for a thousand years. And after that, he'll be thrown in the lake of fire. And so these prideful statements, God's going to destroy those with such high and lofty plans against his people, which means that they are against him. And so you just watch what's going on. Be praying for the innocents. There's no question with this war with Hamas. Be praying. There's many innocents there of other Palestinians that want nothing to do with Hamas. You know, pray for them that, uh, that, they, that they'd be out of harm's way. We definitely want to pray for them and pray for uh, Israel. You know, again, that no innocent lives are taken there as well. But for Hamas, yes, I pray for the destruction of Israel's enemy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so if you're an enemy of God, it's going to lead to your destruction. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And so they were destroyed. And how foolish of them because of verse 11, God's character being exalted. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing what? Who's like God? There is no other God except God. There is no other God besides Yahweh. There is no other God. So how foolish for you to come against him. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The habitation, the holy habitation there is the tabernacle. He's talking about the the habitation means home. It means dwelling. God dwelt in the tabernacle. That's where he dwelt as he's going to be leading uh, Israel uh, into the promised land. Verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty man of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. And so he's telling them right here, he says, the people are going to hear and be afraid. The people, as you go into the promised land, those people, they're going to hear and be afraid. And it says, and, and will melt away. Well, I want you to go over here to Joshua chapter 2, okay? Joshua chapter 2. Notice what it says here. Here we have Joshua that sent spies into Jericho in order to spy out the land. The king of Jericho heard about it. He sends men to go get them. And so Rahab takes them and hides them out in her house. And so now she's talking to the spies in verse 10. And it says, and this is her speaking, for we have heard. Well, we just read the people will hear and be afraid. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. We have heard God's reputation went before him. All that he did there at the Red Sea, they have heard about that and other miracles and how he destroyed the armies of Sihon and Og. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, just like it says here. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. Now watch what is said here. Here is Rahab, a Canaanite, okay, who's heard of the God of Israel. And look how she declares him. For Yahweh, your God, he is God. In heaven above and on earth beneath. Here you have a pagan that knows the correct name of God, Yahweh. Who taught her that? God's reputation went before him. All that Moses spoke before Pharaoh went before him. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Who is this Yahweh, God of the Hebrews? They knew it. Pharaoh would also say Yahweh. He was introduced to the God of the Hebrews as the name being Yahweh. That has been known to all the inhabitants. And now the inhabitants in the land of Canaan have heard of the God of the Hebrews and that his personal name is Yahweh. And she even uses it here. She even uses it here. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Verse 16. 
says, the fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Verse 16 is a reminder of the Passover. It's said twice there. Why? Because the lamb slain, the applied blood, the Lord passed over them. Atonement has been made to where now they qualify to pass over into the land. And how was this made possible? The 10th plague. You're going to take a lamb and you're going to apply the blood. And so when the Lord sees it, he passes over you. Atonement has been made by the blood. And it's the same today. It is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world for those who believe in the work he did on the cross. This is why we read in Acts 20, verse 28. It says, Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock. This is Paul speaking to the uh, uh, leadership. It says, Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. As an overseer, as a shepherd, to the church of God, which he purchase with his own blood. Again, I've used this several times. That's your mic drop for anybody that doesn't believe that Jesus is God. Someone explained to me how God purchased the church with his own blood. The word God there is theos. It means the God who created the heavens and the earth. Theos, the ultimate God, purchased the church with his blood. How did he do that if Jesus is not God? How did he do that? That only makes sense if Jesus is God, thus he shed his blood. And because Jesus is God, God can then say that he purchased the church with his own blood because Jesus is God. And if you don't believe that, then explain to me what that means, okay? You will not be able to without doing some amazing gymnastics to try and pervert the truth. Verse 17 You will bring them in, plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling. That will be the tabernacle, okay? The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. This song is concluded. Now we have the summary. Now there's some who believe that 19 is part of the song, okay? Uh, But if it is part of the song, it definitely concludes the whole song. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. It seems to be like more of an addendum of why we just sang this song. We, give, we were given this before, and now this is the reason we sang this song. And now it, it's given that summary of, of the reason of why we just sung that song. And now we read about Miriam. And Miriam had a role in this song of Moses. But before we read about her role here, we're told something about Miriam. It says in verse 20, that Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, which makes her also the sister of Moses. I want you to go to Numbers chapter 12. In Numbers chapter 12. Now, we're not told specifically uh, what God spoke to her about how God moved her to speak his words. Um, We're not told that in scripture, but here in chapter 12, it kind of confirms that God has spoken to her in times past, and she is a prophetess. But here in Numbers chapter 12, because God spoke to her in times past, and we don't know if it was one time, we don't know if it was a dozen times, we don't know how often God spoke through Miriam to be a prophetess to the people of God, But however many times it was, whether one or more, it certainly went to her head. And now she thinks that she has the same authority as Moses. And so we read here in verse 1 that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And so they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? That's her saying, I'm a prophetess. God has spoken through me. Has he only spoken through Moses? And for some reason, she doesn't think Moses being married to this Ethiopian woman was the correct thing to do. 
Interesting here. Who's the Ethiopian woman? Well, in Exodus 2, verse 16 through 22, we're told that the wife of Moses is Zipporah, the daughter of a man from Midian. So she's a Midianite. Some think that Zipporah might have died, and this is Moses' second wife, and he took, after her death, and he took an Ethiopian woman. Okay, possibly. He's 81 at this time. Um, Others think that Moses took a second wife in addition to Zipporah. This is possible. It doesn't seem likely. Okay. Um, Still others suggest that Jethro, Zipporah's father, was actually from Ethiopia and had moved to Midian, making Zipporah an Ethiopian by birth but living in Midian. Okay, I think that's kind of a stretch, but okay. It may also be possible that the Ethiopian here was a derogatory term. She's a Midianite, but it's a derogatory term because she was not truly a Hebrew, did not come from the true line of Abraham through Isaac. Remember, Abraham married a woman by the name of Keturah, and that's where the Midianites came from, okay? But it says it twice, for he had married an Ethiopian woman, Now, whatever the issue is here, whether she truly is an Ethiopian or it's used in a derogatory term because her skin color is a little darker than theirs, either way, she is using this in a derogatory fashion, okay, over something that this woman has no control over, her ethnicity. Her ethnicity. Now, Let's see how God responds to this. Verse 2, they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And it, it literally says, and the Lord heard it. ruh just in the, in the Hebrew. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, Come out you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. They're being taken to the woodshed. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of clouds, stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. And he said, hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so, my servant, Moses, he is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. We're going to get back to that. But it won't be until Exodus 33, which is many years from now. Um, I speak with him face to face even plainly and not in dark sayings. He sees the form of the Lord. You should have that underline. The form of the Lord. We were created in his image, but does God have form? I would submit to you he does. And why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? It's a good question. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them and he departed. And when the cloud departed from Above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. I I want you to see the irony here. Oh, you think the Ethiopian woman's skin is too dark? Well, let let me make you as white as snow. White. Leprosy. I, I honestly believe... You cannot talk about racism. You cannot talk about what God thinks of races without starting here. Because if you start here, you'd realize, you know what? This really makes God mad when we judge someone by the color of their skin. This really makes God mad. And in Acts chapter 17, we are told, Paul makes it very clear, we all come from one blood, Adam. How ridiculous to have prejudice about somebody because of the color of their skin. We are one in Christ. Our identity is a Christian. And when you identify in Christ, guess what? You don't see any of that stuff. 
because you're now a Christian. And if you put anything before Christian, you are dividing up and God will get angry with that. I'm a white Christian. No, you're not. You're a Christian. I'm a black Christian. No, you're not. You're a Christian. I'm an Asian Christian. No, you're not. You're a Christian. Might happen to be Asian. Might happen to be black. Might happen to be white. Okay, that's fine. I'm a tall Christian. No, you're not. You're a Christian. You happen to be tall. Okay. You might like being tall. That's fine. You might like being whatever skin color you are. That's fine. But you are first and foremost a Christian. And it's interesting to me at the very beginning of calling his people out when we see the very first type of prejudice happening, what God does with it. He says, let me nip this in the bud now. This is how much I don't like this. You don't like this skin color? Let's go to the very end of the spectrum here. I will make you as white as snow And that's leprosy. That's harsh. But I think God got his point across. I think he got his point across. So then it says here, then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. Now, my question is, why isn't Aaron is leprous. And I would say, because the sin lies at her door, she's the one that led this charge. She's the one that started talking smack. He might have agreed, might not have said anything or whatever, but she is the one that led that charge. And because she led that charge, that is why it happened with her. Okay. Um, the Lord said to Moses, if her, um, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, please heal her, O God, I pray. Then the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, Would she not be shamed seven days? That is probably the worst thing that a father can do with a daughter. In that culture, it it shows that you despise her, the the, the height of anger that you have. And God is equating what she said to that. And God is now equating himself to a father who then spits into his daughter's face. Let her shut out of the camp seven days and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. So they're wondering, well, how come we're not going anywhere? Well, because Miriam's still out. Everybody knows about this. Everybody's gonna hear about what Miriam said and what God did. And we don't see this issue being brought up again. I find it interesting. So seven days and then after that, uh, she was probably healed immediately, but she had to stay outside for uh, seven days. So, we have that issue there with Miriam. Now, then we read about her role in the Song of Moses. It would seem that she would then lead the women in a chorus of song, as well as dancing uh, to this song. She took the timbrel in her hand, probably a tambourine sort of instrument. All the women went after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea." It almost seems like that as they're singing this song, as they learn this song, that just, as, just like when we sing up here, we'll say a stanza, and then there's a pause, and now all the ladies say the stanza, you know? And then we sing and sing, and then the, everybody sings this, and we pause, and then maybe the ladies sing that same stanza. It sounds like that's kind of what she is doing, that this is what she's saying over and over again, that sing to the Lord For he has triumphed gloriously for the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And somehow through this song, these first 18 verses or whatever, there's a place where she now leads people to say that. You know, after maybe saying the first four verses, then she says that. Next four verses, then she says that. Or however that works. I'm not a worship leader. But uh, it seems like she's just leading in that chorus. Um, Now, I want to go back here to this statement. The Lord is a man of war. Exodus 14, 14, Moses said to the people, the Lord will fight for you. And so here we see after God has fought for them, how he's called the Lord is a man of war. Later in this song, we see his victory came at his right hand, verses six and 12. And we also read of his right arm in verse 16 and his hands in verse 17. Now I'm gonna take you through this thing and bring it back here to uh, the Lord as a man of war. In Deuteronomy 31, the Lord commissions Joshua to be Moses' 
successor, okay? That he's the one that's going to lead the people in the promised land. Uh, Moses does not go, get to go into the promised land. He goes up to Mount Nebo and dies. And now, uh, uh, now Joshua is the guy that has been commissioned by the Lord. And so in Deuteronomy 31, 23, it says, then he, God himself, inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Now, I want you to go over here to Joshua 1. Moses has now died, and so he is speaking to Joshua, okay? God is speaking to Joshua. I would submit to you that, um, that Joshua knows the voice of God, that he is standing outside of the tent of meeting every time Moses would go in and hear from God. He would go up on the mountain as, as Moses would go up to the, uh, um, the top of the mountain there in the cloud. He would stay back. Um, he is always around Moses. He is his protector and everything else. And so he is around Moses a lot. And then as he's called in, he is, God also speaks to him and Moses being the next guy up. He's going to uh, commission him. And so now Moses is dead. And we read in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, rise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given you. And I said to Moses, from the wilderness, this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong, good courage. For to, this, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land, and at which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong, be very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from to the right hand or the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law, so the law of Moses had already been handed down at this point. This book of the law, the law of Moses, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong, good courage, do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So now go over here to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Here we see Joshua begin to obey and lead the people of Israel. They've now crossed over uh, the, the, uh, the Jordan there. They're camping in a place called Gilgal, which is in the plains of Jericho. And then Joshua goes to check Jericho out. And we read in verse 13, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, And behold, a man stood opposite him, his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. Doesn't quite answer the question. Okay. Because that's not the right right question, Joshua. The question is, are you for him or against him? And so he says, no. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. What does he do? Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped, said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Why did Joshua fall on his face and worship him? Because Joshua knows the voice of God. And the moment he spoke, he knew, he knew. And so he falls on his face and worships. This is not an angel. This is the angel of the Lord, though. But it's not just a regular created angel. And if you've been with us, you know we've gone over this. But back when we went over Exodus chapter 3, okay, we took that whole teaching to go over the angel of the Lord, how many times it is said in God's word, and how it always brings it back. The angel of the Lord speaks of Yahweh, and it speaks of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, every single time. 
And as we'll be able to show here, the command of the Lord is the angel of the Lord, is Yahweh, is the second person of the Trinity. And so he falls down to worship. We're told in Revelation twice, John, the apostle falls down to the angel to worship him. Both times he's rebuked for doing it. First time is after he's shown the marriage supper of the lamb. And the second time is after he has shown uh, the new heavens uh, descending upon the earth. You know, for the new heavens and new earth. And so we read in Revelation 19.10, And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. Revelation 22.8, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. John, two chapters earlier, you were told not to do that. Here you are doing it again. Three chapters earlier. Then he said to me, see, you do not do that, for I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. You can only fall down and worship God. And the commander of the Lord's army, the commander of the army of the Lord, does not rebuke him, does not tell him he should not do that. Why? Because he is God. That is why. No angel should receive worship. Mere men should not receive worship. When Paul and Barnabas healed the lame man who'd never walked before in Lystra in Acts chapter 14, they come to Paul and Barnabas and they called them Zeus and Hermes and wanted to make sacrifice to them. And we read, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that are in them. You only worship God. It's amazing that the commander of the Lord's army says to him, take off the sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. Almost the same exact language read about Moses and his encounter with God at the burning bush. Why? Because Moses and Joshua are before God. Both the burning bush and the commander of the Lord's army is the same person, the angel of the Lord, which we know from previous studies, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, before being born in the flesh. The word commander, very interesting word in Hebrew, sa'er, it means prince. It means prince, captain, ruler. First and foremost, it means prince. Army, Hebrew word, savah, it means host or army. Sa'er, savah, okay, And so I want you to go over here to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We see this used here. Daniel 8. Daniel 8, in speaking of the Antichrist, the little horn who'd be, is going to come in and stop the daily sacrifice in the temple to be worshipped himself. Um, which tells you the temple needs to be built in order for that to happen, okay? Um, We're told here in verse 9, it goes on and said, And one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the southeast, towards the glorious land, that's Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. And he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. Prince of the host is the exact same words as commander of the army. It's Sider Savah. Same words. Daniel wanted more clarity on the little horn. And so in verse 23, it says, In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not of his own power. It's going to be satanic. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. That'd be the Jews. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in the heart, in his heart. And he shall destroy many in their prosperity. He, he shall even rise against the prince of princes. Sa'er, Sa'er's. Prince of princes is a title. The commander of the Lord's army is a title. Who is this prince who leads armies of heaven? Who is this prince of hosts? Well, Jesus describes himself as that person. 
In Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works, Matthew 16, 27. Then we have Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to others. In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, Jesus is described as coming on a white horse with armies of heaven following him on white horses. And then there's something very interesting here. There is a name written on his robe and on his thigh. And it says in Revelation 19:16, and he has his robe and on his on his thigh a name is written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. King of Kings, Greek word is basilus, means commander. It means prince. Hence the prince of princes, the commander of princes, the exact same language we find in the book of Daniel. Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army. Jesus is the prince of princes. And Jesus is also the man of war that is being spoken of here. Going back here to Exodus chapter 15, we see time and time again of how it says uh, that um, speaks about um, the, the man of war. And then it talks about your right hand, O Lord, your right hand, O Lord, in verse 6. And, and uh, you stretched out your right hand in verse 12. And by the greatness of your arm in verse 16. And by your hands in verse 17. Right hand, your arms, is usually thought of symbolically speaking of the strength and power of God, which is true. That, that is absolutely true. But what if it's more than that? wonder if it's more than that, that it's not just speaking symbolically, but it could be actually more than that. I want you to go to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, Isaiah is speaking about uh, how, he, how, God is, how he is remembering all that God did at the Red Sea. And so in Isaiah 63, starting in verse 11, he says something very interesting here. Then he, Isaiah, remembered the days of old. And Moses, his people, saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea, he being God, with the shepherd of his flock, where he, being God, who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Interesting. You see God the Father, you see the Holy Spirit. Only thing missing is Jesus, second person of the Trinity. It's not there. Or is it? He who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm. He, in verse 11, refers to God the Father. He put the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm. You have God the Father. You have have God the Holy Spirit. Now, who is the hand of Moses? Who is his glorious arm, the right hand, the glorious arm? I would submit to you, speaks of Jesus as a military commander. This is not an anthropomorphic idea so much as it is an anthropomorphic title for a person. And I would submit to you this speaks of Jesus. I would submit to you that Jesus is also the right hand of the Father, that he's also his glorious arm. And so when Moses sang this song, the Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name, and when it talks about your right hand, O Lord, your right hand, O Lord, he is speaking of the angel of the Lord as a divine warrior set to fight for his people, the commander of the Lord's army. That's Jesus. Now, one other thing about this song of Moses, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 15. We read something here. They're singing the song of Moses up there. Revelation 
You guys have no place to go, right? Okay, good. <laughs> Revelation 15 this is going to be speaking about the tribulation saints. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, heaven, seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And so before that, it says, and I saw something like the sea of glass mingled with fire. Fire always speaks of judgment. The sea of glass, it's beautiful and everything. It's mingled with fire. It didn't just happen that way. Something had to happen in order to have the sea of glass mingled with fire. I would say tribulation has everything to do with this sea of glass and the statement that it's mingled with fire. It, it came about because of tribulation. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, over the number of his name, that'd be the tribulation saints. Those are those who come to know the Lord during the seven-year tribulation period. They refuse the mark of the beast. Okay, They have died because they won't take the mark of the beast. And so they have the ultimate victory. They're standing on this amazing sea of glass, but it is mingled with fire because it cost them their lives. They were persecuted. Okay, they sing the song of Moses. What? What are you singing that song for? They, th- they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been made manifest. I love this as I read this. Notice the song they sing. They sing the song of Moses as recorded in Exodus 15. After they saw the hand of God deliver them from the Red Sea, God had called the Israelites to the promised land. Where the Israelites go, the Egyptians cannot come. And where the believers are going, the unbelievers cannot come. Where the tribulations and saints went, guess what? The unbelievers cannot follow. And they're standing on this amazing sea of glass. Yes, it's mingled with fire. It's mingled with the judgment of them being persecuted and given their lives. And where they went, unbelievers cannot follow. And so the song of Moses was a song of victory and deliverance for the righteous. And at the same time, it's a song of judgment, wrath on God's enemies. Notice this is not a song about the accomplishments of the tribulation saints. Just like the Israelites, when they sung this song, it was all about God. He's the object, his faithfulness, what he has done for his redeemed, God's deliverance. The tribulation saints understand it is God who delivered them and gave them victory over their enemies. Notice this song is of Moses is sung alongside the song of the lamb. The song is being sung to Jesus, both of them. The fact that these saints combined the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, can only be explained on the basis that Jesus is God. He is God. The scene here in Revelation 15 is reminiscent of Israel following the exodus out of Egypt. The nation of Israel has been delivered by whom? God. How? The blood of the Lamb. Before Israel could be delivered, what had to happen? The last plague. Lamb had to be sacrificed. Atonement had to be made. Blood had to be applied and had to be a blood of the Lamb. In Romans 3, we're also told we overcome death by the blood of Jesus. Here we have the tribulation saints. How were they delivered? By the blood of the lamb. The same way that Israel was delivered. And that is why you can sing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb together being sung to Jesus because he is God. Because he is God. In Revelation 15, 4, this very last part here. For you shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. That's in the future. The tribulation saints are singing this, okay? And they're talking about the future, which is very soon to happen. For your judgments have been manifested. I want you to go to Zechariah chapter 14. Go to um, the very end of the Old Testament. That's Malachi. And then the very next book before it, to your left, is Zechariah. And so in verse 16, Jesus has come. He has set up his kingdom on earth. It's called the millennial kingdom. He is now reigning for a thousand years. And in verse 16, it says something very interesting here. It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who's left of all the nations, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king. So 
all the nations of the world are going to come against Jerusalem when Jesus comes back and wipes them out there in the, in, in the valley of Jezreel, okay? Um, and so even though people will be on the earth from those nations are not personally persecuting Israel, their nation is, okay? And so God destroys all those people that come against Israel there in that valley But guess what? All the people of the nations that didn't go out to fight against Israel, they're still in those nations. They will go into the tribulation. I'm sorry, they will go into the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. So they go in with their sinful bodies. Satan is taken and thrown in the pit for a thousand years. So nobody can say, oh, the devil made me do it, you know, for a thousand years. But they're still in their sin nature, okay? They're still in their sin nature as they go into the millennial kingdom, Jesus is saying, guess what you're going to do from year after year? It says, the Lord of hosts, you're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be, in verse 17, whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And so... um, why the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, because Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God bringing them out from uh, the land of Egypt in these temporaries housing until they got to the promised land. Okay? And so uh, God brought them through the wilderness into the promised land, delivered them from their enemies, and this is going to be reinstated. However, this time, the Feast of the Tabernacles will be a celebration how God brought them through the tribulation period. Interesting. And everyone will be invited to this celebration. It's a time to worship the Lord. Yet verse 7 tells us that 